I invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. Interesting, the selections that Rich chose for our service tonight uh, for this reason primarily, that when we sing hymns, I want you to pay attention, who am I singing to? And different hymns are addressed differently. For instance, the uh, first hymn that we sang, Like a River Glorious, is God's perfect peace over all victorious. You know, stayed upon Jehovah, hearts are fully blessed, finding as he promised, perfect peace and rest. That's not really addressed directly to the Lord, is it? It's really one of the example of what Paul means when he talks about how we are to uh, teach and admonish one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That's a testify to one another type of hymn. The next hymn was nearer, still nearer, we're entreating the Lord, let me draw nearer to you. And then the last one, be still my soul, it's like you're preaching the truth to yourself. And faithful worship, biblical worship, the psalms uh, involve all three of these type of addresses all three of these type of hymns, as it were, addressing the Lord, addressing one another, testifying and, and, testi- uh, and proclaiming to yourself. And in many cases, it's all three in the same psalm. Uh, that, be that as it may. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 19, if you would. I, I've said a number of times that the theme for the book of Revelation is the glorious triumph of Jesus Christ over all of his and our enemy. Jesus wins the victory And he shares that victory with us, with his church, with his beloved bride. No matter what portion of Revelation you turn to, uh, it all points back to this essential reality, this most glorious truth. Jesus triumphs over all of his and our enemies, and he shares that glorious victory with his people. But there's a recurring sub-theme throughout the book as well, When we see this wonder of Jesus' victory and of his grace and salvation, we find worship over and over and over again. The hosts of heaven, uh, the the angels, the the living creatures, the, 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 the saints on high are called upon, and we see them worshiping and proclaiming the Lord, bringing glory to his name. And in fact, We're in chapter 19 on nine separate texts that we've already looked at. We find uh, instances of heavenly worship. Nine songs that are sung to the Lord in heaven. And this text, this evening, Revelation chapter 19, we're going to consider the tenth hymn of praise or worship to the Lord. And in in doing that, I want us to think for a bit about the nature of true worship. Uh, Mark talked this morning about... Uh, white-hot worship as being a necessity in, in the heart of a true believer and in a healthy church. And, uh, and I want to build on some of what he spoke about this, this evening and talk about what happens. What, uh, just see these examples of worship uh, that we find in the book of Revelation and see what we can learn about worship from that. Now, earlier, uh, uh, over this weekend, I, uh, I watched a football game with some of my friends from college. And it's very interesting, whenever something exciting and, and, and really fantastic would happen, you, you can guess what would happen, right? Uh, there's, this, there's this spontaneous expression of enthusiasm and cheering and excitement. Uh, it was almost irresistible to enter into. Nobody had to say, okay, now it's time to cheer. Uh, we just did, because we were enthusiastic about what we'd observed. Now, earlier in the week, my daughter and I went to a concert for the Greenville Symphony, uh, and it was wonderful. It was beautiful. And at the end of each piece, 
the crowd erupted in enthusiastic applause. And when the final number was over, the, 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 the room was raucous, and people were standing and cheering and applauding and calling out bravo. Nobody had to tell us to do that. It was a spontaneous, almost irresistible celebration. It was an expression of the sheer enjoyment that we had experienced as we listened to that orchestral concert. In the book of Revelation, to an infinitely greater degree, these are small potatoes compared to the glorious realities we see in Revelation, and we find the hosts of heaven spontaneously, and I would say even irresistibly responding uh, to the glories of God and expressing their sheer joy and their wonder and their amazement over who God is and what God does. So my message tonight, first I'm actually going to do a survey because I've looked at each one of these uh, worship texts distinctly. We're going to do a brief survey of the nine that we've already looked at and just see who is praising and what are they praising God about? Who is who's speaking praise, and what are they praising God about? And then we're going to come to this 10th in chapter 19, and the title of my message is Heavenly Hallelujahs. So please follow as I read. I'm going to read Revelation 19, 1 through 10, but actually only this evening, this evening, only look at the first five verses. Revelation 19, verse 1, after this I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saint. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This is the word of the Lord. Well, John describes for us several scenes in this chapter. The first five verses I just read, we see this great rejoicing in heaven because of his judgment of Babylon. And we looked at his judgment of Babylon in chapter 17 and 18, and now we find this celebration, this rejoicing take place because God has judged this evil, pernicious influence he calls Babylon, the great harlot. And then we find, secondly, uh, uh, the second scene, this great rejoicing in heaven over the marriage supper of the Lamb in verses 6 through 10, which we just read. But we're actually going to look at that next week, Lord willing. 
And then the last part of the, of the chapter, from verses uh, uh, 10 to the, or 11, rather, to the end of the chapter, we find the Lord Jesus coming uh, uh, triumphant or, or, or powerful, riding on a white horse, leading the armies of heaven in war against the beast and against the kings of the earth, triumphing, defeating his enemies. Well, as I said, tonight we're going to look at this first scene only. Next, next week, Lord willing, we'll look at the, the marriage supper of the Lamb and the, and the rejoicing over that. And then following that in the morning service, we're going to observe the Lord's table, uh, which I think is a fitting, uh, fitting connection. So we look forward to that, Lord willing, next week. So, first of all, I want us to do a, a kind of a flyover, an overview survey of the first nine songs of praise we find in the book of Revelation. I mentioned there are sign nine songs of worship, and I'd like you to get your Bibles out and turn with me, if you would, and uh, let's look at these together. First of all, in Revelation chapter 4, Revelation chapter 4, there's a pew Bible in front of you. I don't have the numbers. They don't correlate with my Bible, but hopefully in, you're in Revelation, you can find them. But in Revelation chapter 4, we find the heavenly host worshiping God the Father around his throne. And the song begins in verse 8 with the four living creatures who've gathered around the throne. Uh, in verse 8 we read, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, uh, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. Day and night they never cease proclaiming the glory, the holiness of God. Now, this is reminiscent. It's actually a reflection of what we read this morning in Isaiah chapter 6. And we've said before, much of the book of Revelation is, uh, uh, is drawn or reflecting important Old Testament texts. And this one, uh, these, 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 uh, these living creatures with their six wings are very much like the seraphim, which have six wings that Pastor Mark said are mentioned only by name, seraphim, in Isaiah 6. But possibly that's who we're looking at here when we come to these four living creatures in the book of Revelation. But day and night, they're proclaiming the glory of God, His holiness and His eternality. God, He was, He is, and He is to come. And then in the second stanza, the 24 elders join in the worship. Now, the 24 elders, you remember there are 12 apostles in the, in the New Testament, and there's 12 um, uh, pay, or 12 sons of, of Jacob, 12 patriarchs in the uh, 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 Old Testament. And these 12 and 12, that's 24, that's a representative of the church from the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. So the 24 elders who fall down represent Old Testament and New Testament saints. And in verses 9 and 10, it says, Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who's seated on the throne and who lives forever, the 24 elders fall down before him who's seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their thrones before him, saying, and here's the next part of this song, this next stanza of praise. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Now, I wish I knew the tune. I know tunes that go with these words. In fact, Handel wrote a spectacular uh, arrangement of worthy is the lamb that we'll look at in just a few moments. Uh, but whatever men can come up with would pale in significance to the beauty and the wonder and the splendor and the glory of the heavenly songs. Uh, but I, I want us to, to think in, in lofty terms 
in exalted and glorious terms as we think of these glorious songs of worship of our God. But we see here, uh, this song is sung, first of all, by the the, the four living uh, creatures and then by the 24 elders, and the theme of their worship is God as he has revealed his glory in creation. You created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Well, we come into chapter 5, the second song of worship that appears in the book of Revelation. Um, And this song is directed specifically to the Lord Jesus, the Lamb who was slain. And the worship, the song begins with the four living creatures and the 24 elders. And the first stanza is a, is a rejoicing, it's a glorying in, uh, of, in the glory of Jesus that's revealed in redemption. Look at verses 8 through 10 of chapter 5. When he had taken the scroll, the Lord Jesus, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, worthy are you to take the scroll And to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign forever and ever. Then I looked and I heard around the throne of the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing." So, so we find this first stanza celebrating, worshiping the Lord Jesus for his glory in redemption. Redemption, not only the sacrifice that he made, but the results that he, uh, he has made us a kingdom and priest to our God and that we will reign on earth forever, the new heaven and the new earth. But then this second stanza, this, this numberless myriad of angels proclaiming the infinite worth of the Lord Jesus Christ to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. But then we have a third stanza, verse 13. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth. That, that involves the, or includes rather, the redeemed saints from all time. In heaven, earth, under the earth, and the sea, and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. One thing that this says to me very powerfully is that if worship is only to be given to God, which it is, and we'll see that in chapter 19, we read a moment ago, then Jesus has to be God. Because every creature in all of uh, existence, the four living uh, creatures and the elders and, and, and all the saints in heaven and all the myriads of angels and, uh, are all bowing down and bringing glory and worship to the Lamb who was slain, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a powerful declaration of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the third song of worship is actually different. This song is in chapter 6. And it's the cry of the martyrs that we read in verses 9 and 10. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who'd been slain for the word of God and for the witness they'd borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you'll judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now, you might say, no, wait a minute. Is is that really worship? Have you read your Psalms? Psalm 13, how long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? That's called a Psalm. What is that called? A Psalm of lament. 
and lamenting, crying out to the Lord is a form of worship. They're not complaining to one another. They're not complaining about God. They're pouring out their lament or their longing to God, and that is worship. So the worshipers here are the martyrs awaiting that final judgment of the wicked who had, who had afflicted them, who had put them to death. And the theme of that worship in this case is their cry to the Lord, a lament for his righteousness to be vindicated, for their righteousness as well to be vindicated. But then we come to chapter 7, and it's the song of the 144,000, those who have been sealed by the Spirit for eternity. And the first stanza of this, we read in verse 19, after this I look, excuse me, verse 9, this is uh, uh, Revelation 7, verse 9, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand. So who's doing the worshiping? It's the redeemed saints, all right? 144,000 is a, a symbolic number. 12 is a number, uh, one of the numbers of perfection that we find in Revelation, but 12 by tw- times 12 by 1,000 uh, is, means a numberless multitude. And in their worship, they're, they're clothed with white robes, which is the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and they're crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's the first stanza, sing, crying out, rejoicing in God for the salvation which he gives through Jesus Christ. But then the second stanza we find in verse 11, and all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. So here we have all of the redeemed saints singing the first stanza, the angels responding in the second stanza, uh, in responding in worship, proclaiming the glory and the matchless worth of God. The words they sing here about God, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power are very similar to what we read in chapter 4 and chapter 5 in their praise of the Father and of the Son in their heavenly worship. But then we come to chapter 11. Chapter 11 is the seventh trumpet, those trumpet judgments poured out. And the first stanza we find in verse 15, this loud voices uh, proclaiming uh, his praise. Verse 15, the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So this is a proclamation of the glory and the triumph of the Lord. And it doesn't tell us if these voices here, the loud voices are the angels, are they redeemed saints? My guess is they're angels. Uh, And and I have some reasons for that. It doesn't really matter a whole lot. But the point is they're proclaiming that God is the victor, that the kingdoms of this world are now the kingdoms of God. He will reign forever and ever. I believe that's pointing to the new heaven and to the new earth. And then we find the second stanza where the 24 elders fall on their faces and they worship God. Verse 16, and the 24 elders who sit on the throne before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who was and who is, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged. 
and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Worship involves adoration, praise, declaration. It also involves thanksgiving. Now, think about this for a moment. Uh, we give thanks to you, Lord. Why? Because you have taken your great, your great power and you've begun to reign. In this world which you created, the nations raged. They defied you. The kings of the earth took counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. But your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged. But also the rewarding of your servants. See, the saints look like the biggest losers in the world. But in his great power, all that is turned over and made right. And so there's this great song of praise that God has begun to reign. He's judged the wicked. He's rewarded the saints. He's destroyed the destroyer of the earth. And here we begin to see the judgment of God proclaimed as a major theme in the worship that we find in the book of Revelation. That worship is now taking place not simply because of God's character, his, that his eternal glory and his creation and the salvation given to us by Jesus, but by the judgment, because of the judgment that God has brought forth upon those who have deserved that judgment upon those who have rebelled against him. Well, in chapter 12, the sixth song of worship we find in chapter 12, there's this great war in heaven, and Michael and, and his angels have defre- defeated the dragon, Satan, and his demonic angels. And Satan and those angels, those demons, are cast down out of heaven. And in verse 10, that, pro- that, that, that uh, victory is declared. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night, before God, and they've conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives, even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows his time is short. Now this worship is not directed to the Lord, it's calling on us to worship the Lord. It's calling on us to rejoice in God for what he's done. And this this. Uh, this, this particular song of praise, uh, uh, it, it declares the salvation of God that he gives. His power, his kingdom, and his authority all manifested in throwing down the accuser of the brethren, Satan himself. And then we come to the seventh song of praise, which we find in chapter, 40, chapter 14. It's the song of the 144,000 that we saw earlier in chapter 7. Chapter 14, verse 1, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, with him 144,000 who had his name uh, and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the living cre- living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. So, we have this voice coming from heaven, but we find this voice is like many waters and thunders, and it's uh, 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 many, many harps, or harpists playing their harps. So, this this huge voice, turns out it's the 144,000. It's the, the mass multitude of the redeemed saints. But it's interesting, this is different from all the others, because John doesn't tell us the words to this song. 
He says, they learned a new song, and no one can learn it except the 144,000. Now, if you're a Christian, you will be part of that great multitude, but we're not there yet. So we don't get to find out what the words are yet. But there's something mysterious and glorious about this. Just think, there's this song. And it's one thing to read the words to these other songs and think the, the, the music, the harmonies, the, the, the harps and the other instruments that will be played will be beyond our imagination, anything we could possibly imagine in this life. It will be exhilarating, not simply because of the musical experience, but because of the God to whom we worship and praise. But then there's this mysterious song that's even richer and better. It's inexpressible and full of glory, we might say. And we can only learn it once we enter into the presence of our God. And then we find the eighth song of praise in chapter 15. And the scene is, of, it's in heaven, and it's those who've conquered the beast. Look at verse 2. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who'd conquered the beast and its image. And the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hand. These are saints who are now in heaven. They have not been defeated by the enemy, but they have overcome, as we were called to do throughout the letters of the churches in chapters 2 and 3. These are the overcomers. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Now, when did, when did the song of Moses happen? It was, it was right after they crossed over the, the Red Sea, correct? So, after the Red Sea, they crossed over, and they won this great victory, and part of their song was, I'll sing to the Lord, for He's triumphed gloriously, the horse and the rider thrown into the sea. And there was a celebration, not just God has delivered us, but that God has vindicated us. He has punished our enemies and destroyed Pharaoh and his armies and proclaimed through that great act his dominance, that he alone is God. That's the song of Moses, but also the song of the Lamb, which shows us the great triumph of the Lord Jesus and the theme of this, of this song is this amazement at the victory of God over his enemies as the Lord defeated Pharaoh and his armies and as the Lord through the Lord Jesus defeats the beast. And the message that we read here in chapter 15, I sing this, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, the song of the Lamb saying, and here it is, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways. And that, that just and true are your ways emphasizes, again, that what God, the way God punishes his enemies is fully just. It's righteous. And it's also true. It's not based on false evidence. It's not based on, on uh, uh, misidentified mis, uh, suspects. But it is true. He truly identifies those who deserve, and they truly deserve the punishment that they receive. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So this, this emphasis is now shifting in these songs of praise to the justice and the glory of God as he judges the wicked. Uh, in verse 4, it tells us that God is holy. So all men ought to fear him. All men ought to glorify his name. All men will one day worship him. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come 
and worship you. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And his righteous acts have been revealed, those acts of judgment and conquest. Well, then we come to chapter 16, uh, the ninth and the final uh, of, these, of these hymns of worship uh, leading up to chapter 19. But in, in chapter 16, the seven bowls of wrath of God have been poured out on his enemies. Verse 4, the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets and you've given them their blood, their blood, or you've given them blood to drink, it is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord, God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Once again, the justice of God, this is what they deserve. And this, this angel in charge of the waters, those waters have been turned to blood, and the angel doesn't look at the waters that he's been placed in charge of and said, oh, no, oh, my, my waters have been, t-. no, he's saying, this is exactly what those who persecuted the saints deserve because they persecuted the saints and the prophets. And the second stanza is like a response. Trust, true and just are your judgments. When we're aware of the incredible destruction Satan's brought onto this creation and the, uh, the awful harm that's inflicted because of sin, because of his rebellion, and the rebellion of men, when we consider the great evil of persecuting the saints of God, and we consider just how, how long it appears that evil is triumphing, triumphing, and it seems like the bad guys are winning. When we see all of these things, it's no wonder there's this great sense of awe and wonder and praise when the justice and faithfulness of God show forth in great victory. And so it's, he's just, and he's true in all his ways. Well, that brings us to our text this evening, and I promise you I'm not going to take very long with this. Uh, but we see that uh, in chapter 17 and 18 that Babylon, the great harlot, has been judged, has been thrown down, has been destroyed. And the wickedness, wickedness that she spread throughout the world is now brought to an end. And this is an occasion for the songs of praise that we find here in chapter 19. In chapter 18, the, the angel cries out, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. That's like a call to worship. And the compelling reason, why should we worship? Because God has given judgment for you against her, you apostles and saints and prophets. And so we see and we hear this rejoicing taking place. John, here's the sound of a great multitude crying out. Probably, I think it's the angels. I don't think it's yet the, uh, the, um, the, 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 the redeemed saints. And the reason is when we get further down, it talks about the bride of Christ, the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's they, not we. And so I think that this, these proclamations are coming from the heavenly host, not from redeemed saints. And so here the redeemed of heaven are called upon to rejoice over the destruction of Babylon in chapter 18. So we have these two stanzas that are sung by this great multitude. First stanza, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are true and just. For he's judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged the blood of his servants. 
Now again, if you're tempted to think, well, that doesn't sound very nice. That doesn't sound gracious or compassionate. Uh, Well, again, we need to recognize the exceeding sinfulness of sin. We need to recognize uh, the glory when God's glory is truly revealed. When God's authority is established once again and all men see it, it is a glorious and wondrous thing. But those who have hated the Lord, who have persecuted his saints, deserve exactly what the Lord pours out upon him. Just and true are his ways. Vern Poitras says it this way, the heavenly company rejoices when wickedness is destroyed and righteousness is established. The judgment is just fitting Babylon's crimes. And the more our hearts and minds are conformed to the glory and to the perfection and the will of God, the more that's going to make sense to us. And the more we're going to realize that just and true are his ways. So this first stanza, hallelujah. Now children, you know what the word hallelujah means, right? We read it in Psalm 117, praise to the Lord. And it's very interesting to me that this is the only place in the entire Bible where this word is translated hallelujah. Uh, In the Old Testament, over and over, it's praise the Lord. It never appears anywhere else in any of the New Testament or even in the book of Revelation. Right here we have it over and over again. Hallelujah. Give praise and glory to the Lord. It's interesting to me because this is such a familiar word. Sixteen of the hymns in our Trinity hymnal have the word hallelujah in them. I looked it up. Uh, Seven of the hymns have hallelujah in the title. Now, it's really only six unless you look at uh, Jesus, what a friend of sinners, hallelujah, what a savior, okay? Uh, or, uh, so, so, but hallelujah is so, uh, so much a part of our, our, our Christian vernacular, as it were, and yet it only appears here in this song of praise to heaven. That's how influential it is that we give praise to our God and so the, the, the praises are spelled out. Salvation and glory and power belong to God. His absoluteness is declared. He is God and there is no other. Salvation is his to dispense as he sees fit. All glory is his. All power is his. He has power over all of his enemies, even though at the present time it may not appear to be so. So those who would, re- who would question our rejoicing or heaven's rejoicing over the destruction of God's enemies need to recognize that salvation it belongs to the Lord. It's his to dispense as he chooses. No one has a claim on the mercy of God. He owes no one grace. Grace is a free gift which God gives according to his sovereign wisdom. But especially those who rejected his Christ, they have no claim on his mercy. Especially those who exchange the truth of God for a lie, those who have persecuted his apostles and his prophets. Salvation is the Lord's, it belongs to him. And again, this theme of true and just are his judgments on the great prostitute Babylon. For centuries and centuries, the servants of God have suffered at the hand of this Babylonian influence, at the wickedness of this world that oppresses and seduces the saints of God and seeks to destroy the church of God as a counterfeit church, as it were. And so the condemnation being declared here is true and it's just. No one can plead innocence. And no one can plead ignorance on that last great day of the Lord. Babylon has inspired this wicked persecution of the people of God, and now God is avenging their blood. Now, 
I want to take just a moment and, and ask you to turn to 1 Peter chapter, well, just turn to Romans 12 if you would, Romans 12. In Romans 12, verse 19, uh, Pastor Mark told us this morning that uh, part of our devotion to Christ, our spiritual worship, as it were, is to devote ourselves entirely to the Lord, heart and soul and body, present ourselves a living sacrifice, which is your spiritual worship. Well, part of what that looks like in real time, verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. By so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, rather overcome evil with good. How can we not be overcome by evil when people mistreat us, when people are wicked and cruel, and when they seem to be winning and they seem to be walking away with no consequence? Well, the only way we can truly overcome evil with good in that sense is to be confident that God will make it right. As, as we read in, 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 uh, in 1 Peter chapter 2, Jesus didn't retaliate when he suffered. He uttered no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He said, my father will straighten it out. My father will make it right. My father will establish justice. I don't need to. I can simply do what God has called me to do. And we can do what God has called us to do, trusting that God will make it right. He will, in the end, vindicate the cause of his people and establish justice on the earth. He does judge justly. He will avenge his people. He will see that all wrongs are made right. And for some, that means their sins are covered in the blood of Jesus. But for others, it will fall upon their own heads. Well, we come to the second stanza in verse 3. Once more they cried out, hallelujah, the smoke for her goes up forever and ever. So there's this great rejoicing coupled with profound amazement, not about our victory, our glory, our deliverance, but on Christ and his victory over his enemy and on the, the specter, the, the, the shocking, astonishing specter of Babylon, which had appeared so regal and glorious and luxurious as now a pile of smoke that goes up forever and ever, never to be restored. But then the third stanza, the 24 elders and the four living creatures join in, in verse 4. They fell down and they worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice with another verse saying, praise our God, all you his servants, all you who fear him, small and great. Children, hallelujah means, uh, what, what does it mean? It means praise the Lord, Amen. Now, when do we say amen? We say it at the end of a prayer, right? Or if the preacher says something particularly profound, somebody might go, amen. All right? But what does the word mean? It means, that's true. I fully agree with what you have just said. This is sure. This is certain. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, when the Greek, it's amen, amen. This is really true. So when the angels fall down and say, amen, hallelujah, they're saying, what has just been said is true. And we praise the Lord that it is true. In chapter 3, verse 14, Jesus is called the faithful, the amen, faithful and true. And then that final stanza, the voice for the throne, this mighty angel in verse 5, calls on everyone to praise God. All you 
servants of the Lord, you who fear him, small and great. Servants of the Lord, you who fear him, are the same group. True fear of the Lord is going to make us his servants. We are, he is our God. We are his people. And on that day, all of heaven will be overjoyed by the glorious victory that we will experience in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when people think about the music of heaven, uh, you know, for, for me, I don't know about you, but when I think of the music of heaven, the closest I can imagine is Handel's Messiah. Would you, would you, some of you probably agree with that, right? I hope. Uh, and the most familiar song in the Handel's Messiah is the Hallelujah Chorus. And the Hallelujah Chorus is drawn largely from this chapter. Now, there, it's not drawn from consecutive verses, interestingly. The first part, hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns, is actually in verse 6, which we'll look at next week in the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then in chapter 16, it tells us that there's this name written on Jesus' thigh, uh, the King of kings and Lord of lords. That's the glorious proclamation in the Messiah, in, in the hallelujah chorus. That's further down. But also, we find in, the Hall- in, in, in Revelation chapter 11, the, the seventh trumpet proclaims the final victory of the, of the Lord Jesus. And that's where we find the words, the kingdoms of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. But over and over in the song, just wave after wave of this jubilant hallelujah. Now, we need to realize, as glorious and wonderful as that is, it pales in significance to the power and the beauty of this heavenly worship that we'll sing before the throne of God. So, when we get to heaven, so many people say, well, I can't wait to be reunited with this loved one or this loved one. And that's going to happen. You know, Paul, encouraged, Paul, Paul assured us that we will be restored to our loved ones who've gone before us. But what will consume our attention is not that glorious reunion of the saints. It will be that we, together with those saints, we will engage in this amazing worship of our amazing God. I, I spoke earlier about this concert that I went to earlier in the week, and the applause was, was so loud and so exuberant, it, it was almost euphoric. It was spontaneous. It was, it was almost irresistible, and it went on and on. It seemed like forever. It was, it, it was several minutes. But there was this expression of appreciation for, for the sheer enjoyment that we had just received. Now, brothers and sisters, when we get to heaven, and when God wipes every tear from our eyes, when he brings us into the new heaven, into the new earth, when he establishes perfect justice throughout the new heavens and the new earth, when he makes all things new, and when he dwells with us so that we can see him face to face, no one's going to have to tell you to rejoice. No one's going to have to give you instructions on how to sing for joy. You will not be able to keep it in. We will all together sing hallelujah. Salvation and power and glory belong to our God forever and ever. And his worship will be our highest joy and our greatest privilege. If you have no appetite for the worship of God, you need to stop and ask yourself the question, why not? That's not a good sign. Now, there are times when... Our hearts are not 
is tuned into worship as we would like. <coughs> but on that day, we will never again sing the first verse for Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Think about that. Never again sing, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Tune my heart to sing your praise. Grace, we won't need our hearts to be tuned. They already will be. Streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet. We won't have to be taught some melodious sonnet. We will, it will just come bubbling up from us. Never again will we sing the final verse. Oh, to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let that grace now, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take it and seal it. Seal it for the courts above. We'll never have that feeling of proneness to wander. We'll never feel like, uh, like we are double-hearted or double-minded. Rather, one of the middle verses for this hymn will more express our experience. Oh, that day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face clothed then in blood-washed linen. How I'll sing thy sovereign grace. That will be our experience on that day. We'll be set free from every vestige of sin. We'll see the lovely face of our bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we'll look at next week, he will serve us at the marriage supper of the Lamb. We'll be clothed in white robes, washed clean by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we will never, ever be able to get over the riches of the kindness and the glory of a sovereign grace. Even so, come, Lord Jesus.